Hello, and welcome to episode number 84 of the Point of Convergence podcast. As always, I am your host, Exoacademian. Ever since the dawn of the modern UFO phenomenon, a wide variety of terms have been used to describe people's reactions to it. People have been fascinated, frustrated, shocked, perplexed, bewildered, frightened, and inspired. And because of the enigmatic nature of encounters with the beings associated with this phenomenon, often several of these descriptors can and do apply for any given situation. As has been pointed out numerous times on this podcast and elsewhere, when one widens the historical scope, it is not a stretch to wonder, even postulate, if beings from more distant folklore may be part and parcel of the same enterprise. And this is true not just because these events that come to us from the depth of recorded human history involve encounters with apparently non-human entities, but also because the nature of the encounters often involves similar elements. That said, one could also argue that this might be an example of a brush simply applied too broadly. In other words, perhaps because of the very fact that these encounters across time do involve similar elements, we might be tempted to prematurely draw precise parallels where they perhaps do not exist. Were the creatures of fairy lore the very same as our modern-day prototypical gray aliens? Or do we simply leap to this conclusion because they neither fit neatly within our tidy conventional zoological models? In the 20th century, reaching a fevered pitch sometime in the 1990s, word of human abductions by these supposed gray aliens slowly became part of our cultural zeitgeist. The narrative around these more recent encounters involved apparent genetic experimentation and even full-on hybridization programs. Again, though, if we widen the scope once more, one could postulate that some of the apparently anomalous leaps in our species' cognitive capacity throughout hominin history were also the fruit of similar genetic intervention and augmentation programs. People have also wondered aloud if the UFO phenomenon marks the beginning of a new religious trend. During the 20th century, many postulated that visits by the so-called Space Brothers, bearing an uncanny resemblance to ourselves, by the way, marked the beginning of a new frontier in spiritual discovery. But again, if we step back, adopting the 30,000-foot view, one can logically question if the very seed of religious belief and practice for our species, from our very earliest creeds on, were also the fruit, either directly or indirectly, of encounters with these same anomalous beings. Which leads us to some pressing questions. Are these beings the same groups of entities interacting and shaping us over time? Or is our imagination simply so limited that we have inappropriately drawn parallels where they simply don't exist, opening up the possibility that perhaps our ontological landscape is simply much more complex and diverse than we've yet been able to really fathom, let alone truly reckon with. While the history of anomalous encounters seemingly goes right back to the dawn of our civilization, more recent events raise a particularly pressing question. Does the apparent increase in our species' interaction with some of these non-conventional beings in recent history paired with what one could argue is a seeming march towards a cataclysmic collapse of our own making, suggests that while interactions with non-conventional entities have existed across the breadth of human history, that they are now nearing some kind of culmination point, where, as some of the experiencer narrative would suggest, 
This results in a situation where everything and everyone is left completely different afterwards. And furthermore, is this coming apex inflection point terminal or transformational for our civilization, and perhaps even both? These are the daunting, challenging, and awe-inspiring matters we'll seek to engage with in this, the 84th episode of the Point of Convergence podcast. As we begin this week's episode, I'd just like to remind you that for those interested in bonus content and additional features, you can also subscribe on Spotify and get access to all normal episodes as well as all bonus episodes, or you can become a patron on Patreon. Both of those options are available. Again, this gives you all of the bonus content as well as access to ongoing discussion on the private Discord server and other things as well. I just launched, for instance, the second episode in the feature series on the raw contact material, and we're going to touch on the raw material a little bit today as well. But moving on to today's topic, we are going to talk about the big picture, ask some open-ended questions, take the macro view seen across human history, while also asking what I would suggest is a very key question. Is there something unique about now? Are we perhaps at the precipice of a truly unique point in history? Here is something I recently posted to social media. Quote, Untold thousands report similarly themed encounters, and they're not all mistaken and or delusional. Secondly, other intelligences can and do mask activities. Thus, minimal empirical evidence does not equal lack of presence, but suggests a clandestine, though not necessarily malevolent, campaign. And this is what we're going to get into today. What is this campaign about? Is it unique to recent history, or is it indicative of a longer campaign going across time? And or, as I said in the introduction, do we mistake certain different campaigns for the same one? Do we collapse and conflate the activity of different entity groups because of our myopic way of seeing reality and even the anomalous? One question, of course, that we have to get to right away is, who are they? Who are these others? Who are these non-conventional beings that at least apparently seem to be non-human? Now, we've talked about different hypotheses, but often the hypotheses assume they really are not human. And in that sense, we call them aliens. But of course, according to the work more recently of Dr. Michael Masters, there's also this question of whether or not they are time-traveling humans. This is something we discussed in depth on the most recent episode of Liminal Frames. Of course, there's also the possibility that there's some third category where neither of the former options really apply, but we just haven't been able to imagine it yet. And that's something I really want to hit home here. We do not know what we do not know, as the saying goes. And because we just don't have a full understanding of the context in play here, we just don't know really what the options are. As I often quote Jacques Vallée, he said, what the UFO phenomenon teaches us is that we do not understand space-time. That is clear. And as I've been saying over numerous podcast episodes, this is not just something Jacques Vallée is saying. Even modern physics is indicating this, that space-time is doomed indeed, meaning that it is now known that it is not tenable as a foundational, fundamental model of reality. But let's get back to our question here about 
who they are. Are they aliens? Are they time-traveling humans? Or are they at least somehow some kind of entity that is connected to us? Let's again talk about the evidence for the fact that they are uniquely connected to us. And this fact, regardless of exactly how they are connected to us, should be profound when we really pinpoint just how similar they are to us, how much we have in common. It says something remarkably significant that sometimes goes missed because perhaps, again, in our myopia, we assume that space aliens might look something like us. But of course, the most cutting-edge scientists who've really thought about this and thought about evolutionary processes on different planets, they've long concluded that they would not likely look anything like us, and furthermore, would be very unlikely to be able to communicate with us. And yet, not only do we communicate with them, but they sometimes speak to us in what seems like our native language, and or both of us, them and us, can speak or communicate, I should say, in a kind of telepathic way, just mind-to-mind -mind communication. Now, we could argue that perhaps this is just something that higher-order beings learn to do across the cosmos, which, of course, if that's true, that itself is a profound statement saying something about the underlying nature of reality and our connection to everything that is. But even on a more superficial level, the fact that we share that telepathic communication with them suggests, again, a unique bond between us, some sort of connection point. So let's talk about the possibility that they are us from the future for a moment. Again, here I'm going to read from the work of Dr. Michael Masters. Who is he? Quote, Dr. Michael P. Masters is a professor of biological anthropology at Montana Tech in Butte, Montana. After receiving a PhD in anthropology from The Ohio State University in 2009, where he specialized in hominin evolutionary anatomy, modern human variation, archaeology, and biomedicine, Dr. Masters spent the following decade developing a broad academic background that unites multiple scientific disciplines with the aim of elucidating a currently unexplained phenomenon. Remaining vigilant in his own skepticism, Dr. Masters continues this research with the intent of initiating informed dialogue about UFOs via an abductive method of inquiry that is firmly rooted in science and the principle of parsimony, unquote. And that's key there, the principle of parsimony. Again, I touched on this in the Liminal Frames episode. What is the simplest explanation here? What involves the least number of leaps? When we look at who these beings are, how they appear, how they communicate to us, you cannot get past the fact that they seem to be connected to us, may in fact even be us in some way. Although again, I would suggest we try to keep the aperture open here in terms of exactly how they are connected with us. Because again, as we already said, we do not really understand space-time. And because of that, then the connection may be beyond what it appears to be at first blush. Indeed, space-time is ultimately not foundational in many ways can be seen as illusory or certainly not ultimately foundational. But let's think about some of the connection points, some of the overlap between us and them, while also holding aside for a second the question of exactly how they are therefore connected to us. I want to quote here from The Extratempestrial Model, which is the second book that Masters has written on this particular topic. Quote, as mentioned above, it is improbable that extraterrestrial aliens would evolve to look or act like us. The odds are very low that another two-legged, upright-walking hominin with two eyes, a nose, a mouth, five digits on each hand and foot, 
and an enlarged brain and neurocranium would evolve again in a separate solar system. It is even less likely when considering the specific environmental and biocultural factors that culminated in our complex condition, making our species unique among the plethora of organisms on this planet. Taking into consideration countless consistent reports provided by sound-minded individuals who assert that they have seen or interacted with these beings, both they and us seemingly share numerous derived characteristics unique to the hominin lineage. Among the most recognizable of these is our bipedal form of locomotion, or upright walking, which is the trait that defines our hominin lineage. Reports of close encounters also indicate that we and the visitors share traits like bilateral symmetry, relative hairlessness, dexterous hands, sexual reproduction, the lack of a tail, which is also rare on Earth, a large and globular brain, big eyes, and a small nose and mouth. These shared derived traits are unlikely to arise in alien creatures that underwent a separate evolutionary trajectory on a different planet elsewhere in the universe. Other scientists are also skeptical about the universality of intelligent life on other planets or that extraterrestrial beings would evolve to look anything like us, unquote. So that is quite a compelling quote. Again, some might suggest that perhaps evolution is not as ultimately explanatorily powerful as it purports to be at this point in our history. That may indeed be the case. But what I really want to draw our attention to here is just how similar we are to these beings. There seems to be some connection point. So what does that mean? Now, what this opens up, of course, is the possibility that if they are us from the future, then perhaps they are here playing with history, not just observing, but actually playing. And of course, this raises other questions, which again speaks to just how uninformed we are in some ways. I think that what we should do, what we should employ when we're thinking about these matters is be honest, be humble about how much we don't know and how much there is that we don't know that we don't know. We don't really understand space-time. And again, there's evidence that space-time itself is not even foundational and ultimately may be illusory, may even be a product of our evolutionary trajectory and the way we've learned to navigate an underlying reality that we never actually interact with directly. And we'll get to that later in the episode, including speaking about the work of Donald Hoffman. But let's think about this playing with history notion. I thought about something along these lines. Joe McMonagall, who has this remarkable remote viewing and psi capacity in general, was tasked one time with actually going aboard a plane in history from the 1970s that crashed. And he actually was tasked with finding out what kind of detonation device was used. Now, remarkably, he was able to seemingly go back in time and observe what happened and where the device was, what kind of device it was, etc. So that is already remarkable in itself. But what really stands out to me was when he pointed out that people on the plane, on board the craft, who were about to be blown to smithereens, unfortunately, could see him as he went on to that scene to observe it. And so in that sense, he was, again, not just an observer. You could argue theoretically Basically, he was changing the timeline because they could see him, and perhaps that would make them act in different ways. Now, those ways might have been inconsequential in terms of what happened. The plane still blew up. But nevertheless, the fact that they saw him suggests that this allows us to change the timeline, that merely by introducing a new factor, you change things. Now, one of the notions I want to introduce today 
is the idea that this may not just be a question of are these aliens or us from the future? And when I say aliens, I mean space aliens or interdimensional aliens, whatever that means. We'll also get into that. But what I also want to introduce again in extending our viewpoint here, trying to take a larger, more expansive vantage point here, is to suggest that both could be going on in the sense that some of these overarching alien groups who truly are alien to us in some ways are actually waiting and watching as our species not just goes through the process of expanding and understanding space, but also standing by watching the kindergarten class, if you will, as it begins to experiment with time. So in other words, both could be true. We could have aliens in the largest sense, those really not connected to us through a direct hominin lineage, like Masters would suggest, but that we also have ones more related to us, more recently related to us, who are actually interacting with our timeline. And part of our evolution as a species, as a collective consciousness, involves also learning the lessons of playing with timelines, if you will. I also want to point out here again that we do not understand space-time. And because of that, I sometimes laugh when I hear people making remarkably static and solid statements about how time travel would work. The truth is we really don't know. Again, we really don't know what we don't know. We have notions of space-time right now. And it's funny when you think about it because on the one hand, some physicists like Nima Arkani Hamed, as I've discussed before, are suggesting that space-time is doomed as a model altogether. It cannot be foundational. It must be a derivative of some deeper structure. So to speak about how we move through time as well as space is kind of, you could argue, missing the point. This may be happening at a deeper structure, and we just see the derivative aspects of this where it looks like movements in space and time. And again, I've been saying for a long time now that I think it's likely that these beings, many of them, are interacting in that deeper structure of reality. And again, I want to point out again that what we see of reality, how we experience reality, is not what it seems. We are experiencing an interface, a desktop interface, as Donald Hoffman would say, and we'll get to that later. But that's one thing when we think about the big questions here and the big picture. This is something that has shifted since the 1990s. In the 1990s, experiencers, abductees slash contactees, were forced by people who assumed there was an objective consensus reality to explain how these things could have happened, assuming that what we see and experience is objective reality, and therefore these other things can't fit within that. But when you realize, as Hoffman's work has suggested, that what we experience actually is already an interface, several steps beyond what actually is out there, then the question is not, how are they part of our reality, but indeed, how are they interacting with our interface? Because when we do see them, when we do experience them, they are literally coming into our interface as icons on the desktop screen of our evolutionary-derived experience of reality. That's a different way to think about it, and that's something that's different than it was in the 1990s, and I want to keep that point front and center as we continue to ask ourselves, what does this all mean? Who are these beings? Who are we? And what is reality? And to that point, I now want to quote another tweet that I made on social media. Quote, we do need a multidisciplinary academic approach to understanding the so-called paranormal, but that effort needs to be a wide open, imaginative enterprise willing to rebuild from the foundation up if necessary. 
otherwise phenomena that will not fit within the prevailing physicalist model will yet again be disinvited to the party, and not because they are unreal, but simply because they are inconvenient. Unquote. This is really key. I welcome, as I say, this academic approach. We should have scientists come in and try to examine this data and perhaps even conduct experiments to try to learn more about it. But there are some things from history we already know. We think about what Calm Kelleher has said about experiments that were conducted at Skinwalker Ranch. And John Alexander has made similar points. And that is that these beings, this intelligence, whatever it is, seems to operate beyond, again, our parameters of space-time. It seems to know what we're going to do before we do it. And of course, scientists coming in assuming that people are just mistaking prosaic matters for something extraordinary, assume that we just haven't thought about conducting experiments, actually identifying different variables, playing with specific variables to learn things about this. Of course, people have tried that. It was exactly the approach at Skinwalker Ranch and for two completely different groups as well. You've got Brandon Fugel's group doing that more recently, but Robert Bigelow's group did it historically. And what was found was that, again, they would play with the experiments themselves. They would mess with the constants that we were trying to set up. And when you do that, that really calls into question the way that you can actually empirically investigate this entire enterprise, which again is not to say that we shouldn't try, but the fact that we're seeing that evidence itself should tell us something about the nature of reality. And the fact that when we're not alone, when there are other intelligent beings on the scene, then we can't assume that we're always observing constants. We may be seeing things that are already being manipulated at a higher level, again, which speaks to what is reality and what are we experiencing of that reality. And speaking of the nature of reality as opposed to the way we experience that reality, I'd now like to bring a different factor into the equation. And that has to do with how our memories even may not fully reflect what has actually gone on. And here I think about someone like Robert Hastings, who only recently came out as an abductee, as a contactee. And he didn't just recently come out because he was concerned that that would impact, perhaps negatively impact, people's perception of his lifelong work around UFOs and nukes but also because he himself only more recently became aware that he is an abductee slash contactee. And this is depicted in the book Confession, Our Hidden Alien Encounters Revealed by Robert Hastings and Bob Jacobs. And I want to read the description for that book here to give you some context. Quote, Two well-known figures in ufology, UFOs and nukes researcher Robert Hastings and military whistleblower Dr. Bob Jacobs, divulged their long-hidden status as experiencers. Although Hastings' well-respected work involves investigating still-classified UFO incursions at American nuclear weapons sites, and Jacobs is best known for participating in one of the key cases, each has privately endured a number of strange encounters with paranormal UFO-related phenomena. Concerned that an open admission of this fact would negatively impact their reputations as reliable sources, for military-related UFO information, both remained silent about their sometimes terrifying experiences for decades. Now, however, they believe that they must go public with the truth. Over time, Hastings and Jacobs have focused on securing and publicizing UFO data kept secret by the U.S. Air Force. But when the bizarre and disturbing incidents began to occur years ago, seemingly involving interactions with non-human entities, 
they were forced to confront the UFO subject on a much more personal level. Apparent abductions, bedroom visitations, and other related events have taken place on an ongoing basis. While the authors do not pretend to understand the situation or the reasons for their involvement in it, they are convinced of the physical reality of their encounters." Unquote. So this is really, really key here, because what this suggests, again, is that we do not know what we do not know. In the case of these two men, for instance, they have been longtime activists in this field, specifically to do with UFOs and the nuclear connection. Why are we seeing UFOs so often at nuclear facilities, nuclear weapons facilities specifically? And why have they shown this capacity to test with our nuclear facilities to actually try to shut down warheads and things like that that they've been able to do? And in one case, in the Soviet Union, they've actually at times turned them on. But the point here is that these two men didn't realize that there was anything beyond themselves that was fueling this lifelong passion. For decades, they were doing this. Hastings talks about going around university campuses in the past and talking about these issues, even when audiences were small, he kept going. He assumed this was coming of his own volition. Of course, when he had more recent sudden memories of contact experiences when he was a child, he began, of course, to put two and two together. Was his obsession planted by them? Was his life calling, his vocation, if you will, something that they gave him? Or is there also the possibility that, again, as we hear about in the experiential literature, he may have come from somewhere else. He may have had a connection with these beings before this lifetime and perhaps knew about this mission on some deeper level that he's only now coming into contact with. He hasn't concluded that, but I'm saying some contactees do end up concluding that, that when they have these missions, it's not just that it comes from their own volition in this lifetime. And it's also not necessarily that these others are implanting these ideas, like the Manchurian candidate kind of scenario, but actually that they themselves have an identity of a dual nature, that they are somewhat human in something else as well. Which again, raises the question, who are we? Not just who are they, but who are we? There are so many questions we don't really understand. And again, I would encourage us to be excited about that because there's so many things to explore yet not to be overwhelmed by the fact that there's much we don't know and much that we don't know that we don't know. But of course, this also begs the question, is it possible that the abduction or contact program is much more widespread than we have thus far realized or assumed? The fact that people are going decades before sometimes remembering these things suggests that perhaps many, many people have had these experiences. Perhaps we're not talking about thousands, but perhaps millions of people one maybe even asks if it's billions. We just don't know. We don't know how widespread this is, not just because we don't know what we don't know, but also because these beings, these others, some of them anyway, seem to be able to manipulate our experience of space-time. They are able to seemingly stop local space-time. Hastings talks about this, one time having a memory as a kid, sitting around a kitchen table with his family, and suddenly everyone freeze-frames at the table sometimes with spoon or fork halfway to their mouth, but he's still able to move and experience space-time rolling on. And then suddenly he sees what seem like gray beings appear, aliens. But again, the scene stays frozen while he moves about with these others, and only once he's returned by these others, not really knowing what's happening in between, 
but he's returned by these others to the kitchen table, and only then does everyone reanimate, as it were. So again, when they have this degree of ability to manipulate our experience of what we perceive as space-time, notice the qualifiers I'm using here, this suggests there's much we don't know, much we still need to investigate, much that science itself has to open its mind towards. Now, speaking of interaction and intervention, let's again open the aperture. This may not be a recent phenomenon. What about ancient history? What about these beings understood to be the gods? What if these encounters really were about these very same beings visiting and interacting and shaping our civilization over time, even our ancient civilizations? Of course, we also have to keep in mind here that, again, that myopic view might be something that we suffered from back then. For instance, if we assume that any kind of non-conventional being that came on the scene was God, then when perhaps different ones came, we interpreted as the actions of a single God or a single group, a single council of beings. But what if different groups with different origins and different agendas were arriving on the scene? And again, our lack of imagination made us conflate and collapse these into one kind of group, and then we formed narratives around religious themes that sometimes are even contradictory, perhaps not because they are the signs of one group communicating seemingly strange and contradictory things over time, but actually these were different groups saying different things with different agendas, and the paradox, the contradictions are in the fact that we tried to conflate that into the gods working with us, or God working with us and trying to give us instructions about how we should live our lives. Again, when you think about how we've looked at this phenomenon, much of it not just comes down to what has happened, but how we've interpreted what has happened. And it's key to parse those two out when we think about the history. And to that point, I've made this argument in terms of more recent apparent campaigns by non-conventional intelligences. Again, I hesitate from saying aliens, because some of them may be us from the future, again, somehow us as well. But part of the problem is when people look at the data as one totality, they see what appears to be contradictory actions and messages. And therefore, we've even assumed there's a trickster element to this. I'm not saying there is not a trickster element, but I'm saying that if you take actually what are, say, four distinct patterns, I'm just picking a number here, and you assume it's actually one pattern, then when you do that conflation, you're going to see things that seem contradictory, that seem to turn back on themselves. And that may be because actually we have numerous distinct patterns that because they are all of a non-conventional nature, we conflate and collapse into one pattern and then marvel at the fact that we can't make much sense of it. I think here of groundbreaking works like Jacques Vallée's Passport to Magonia, where he asked these questions about could these various interactions over time even while on a cursory view seem different, actually be evidence of the same kinds of beings interacting with us over time. That's certainly a possibility, and I'm thankful for his contribution to the field in getting us to widen the scope. That's always a good thing. And realize these things have been going on before 1940. But to that point, I think we should open the scope even more and again ask the question if sometimes we assume the interactions with non-conventional beings over time suggest that may be the same group when perhaps it's not. Perhaps again, the situation, the scenario, the landscape is just much more diverse and complex than we've thus far had the imagination 
to reckon with. I'll give you an example here. My friend Stuart Davis pointed this out to me one time, and I thought it was a great point. Imagine you have a bay, and in this bay you see three different kinds of objects come into the bay. First you see a swan wander in, and then perhaps thousands of years later, ancestors of those first people that viewed the swan notice a canoe growing up from a neighboring tribe perhaps. And then you go again for a thousand years and suddenly you have a nuclear submarine coming into the bay. Now, those are three distinct groups slash entities slash origin sources. They are not related to each other other than they are beings on the vast landscape. But a swan, a canoe with someone rowing it, and a nuclear submarine are very different things. When we think about it that way, we realize it's somewhat foolhardy to assume that this is one strange entity manifesting in different guises over time. First as a swan, then as a canoe, then as a nuclear submarine. What does that mean? Why is it tricking us with these different appearances when actually the truth is these are just three different entities altogether? So that's something to keep in mind. Sometimes our assumptions, the things we leap to, actually bias the way we see the data and blind us, more importantly, to how we might see the data differently. And further to that point, I'd like to now draw our attention to this notion that some of this genetic manipulation, some of these hybridization programs may be, as some suggest, part of a campaign where they are trying to take over the world. They are slowly changing us to make us like zombie beings so they can later come in without facing any kind of resistance as they take us over and take the planet for themselves perhaps making us slaves in the process, zombie slaves on top of that. I'm not saying that's not a possibility, but I'm also saying that, again, bears a striking resemblance to our recent colonial history. This is a kind of cosmic colonialism, you could call it. But again, I would question whether or not these beings that seem to operate in a 5D kind of environment would act this way. This is like playing 3D chess for 5D beings. Why would they do it that way? Why would they need to do it that way? Again, they are able to manipulate our very experience of space-time, therefore what we perceive as reality. If they are working to nefarious ends, they could do so in a way that we would never even be aware. So again, to apply these notions of 3D chess moves to 5D beings seems to me somewhat foolhardy at best. Now, when skeptics, of course, look at this and they see a lack of empirical evidence, they see a lack of UFOs landing on the White House lawn and whatnot, or radio signals coming from Alpha Centauri, they assume there is no there there. They see the lack of empirical evidence as an example that this notion is all imaginary, the entire enterprise. Some cannot slash will not entertain this because they are so wedded to the current prevailing physicalist model. How can they think we've arrived? That's what I wonder, because that's basically the way they're acting, that our current model is very close to the ultimate truth, and if this thing doesn't fit within that model, then it must not exist. You've heard the expression, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. I would point out to us that this is also true for what I call the near-pinnacle delusion, this notion that we're almost at a point of complete knowledge and therefore, when we see outliers, we assume they just must be glitches, not actual elements of data, suggesting to us that our model itself is not only perhaps incomplete, but perhaps even woefully misguided. And again, according to the spirit of science, we should embrace this. And I hope more academics and scientists do come for it. And we are beginning to see that happen as this entire narrative takes more hold in the public sphere. But again, I think we need to allow this to make us question our very models themselves. 
Now, speaking of possibilities and opening the aperture, and like I said earlier, perhaps even considering the possibility that some of the others interacting with us are actually versions of ourselves in different what seem like elements of time or points along the history of human civilization, there's also the possibility that there are larger groups, more overarching groups, more sophisticated groups who are actually watching that enterprise as well and seeing it as part of our evolution and understanding the consequences the laws of cause and effect when you mess not with just space, but also time, because of course it's an integrated fabric. Now, earlier I mentioned the raw material, the law of one material. Now, one notion that comes out there is that there's this honoring of free will. And to that end, what that means is if we reach out to certain kinds of beings, if we even make pacts with certain kinds of beings, as has been described in the Eisenhower meetings and different points along U.S. history and perhaps campaigns that were agreed to with non-human intelligences or at least non-conventional human intelligences if they are us from the future. That can be the case because free will seems to be honored, but at the same time we also see this kind of shielding around our planet where we do not have this invasion by nefarious groups or non-human groups. This suggests there is a kind of shielding that takes place, a kind of prime directive over all of this, because when you think about it, regardless of which beings are interacting with us, at which points in history, there seems to be this under-the-radar kind of way that they do it. There are no groups landing on the White House lawn at this point. So there seems like there are some basic overall rules or guidelines, but also within that, you have some groups that perhaps are very benevolent, very evolved, very far along the spiral of consciousness development, and other ones that are more technologically sophisticated than us, perhaps, but not necessarily that much further along morally. And again, this could all work together because this could be part of the process of us learning about our decisions. As I've said on previous podcasts, even learning about the implications of making pacts with alien groups or apparently non-human groups just for the sake of gaining short-term gain in terms of technology, as one could suggest that has been the apparent case according to what we learn about secret U.S. military history. Now, in terms of opening the aperture, asking the big questions, assuming that perhaps our models might be woefully incomplete, perhaps even almost completely misguided, I again want to bring in the figure of Donald Hoffman and his important work. Now, who is Hoffman? He is a cognitive scientist and professor at the University of California, Irvine. Now, prior to Hoffman and his work, what was the common assumption in scientific circles was that we didn't certainly see all of reality, but that we assumed that the part we saw, the slice we saw, was accurate. In fact, we assumed that the fact that we have been able to manipulate our environment, navigate through our environment, suggests that there must be a close parallel between what we experience and the actual underlying reality. But what Hoffman's work has done is shown how that is actually a false assumption, and that's what it is, an assumption. Once again, we see an example where even in science, certain assumptions sneak through the cracks and therefore become part of the prevailing model. What Hoffman points to is the fact that, again, what we experience is actually an interface with icons on a screen, if you will. And when you look at a, again, a garbage can or a trash icon on a computer screen, of course, that's not indicative of the underlying reality, which is binary code and those kinds of things. It actually is just something that appears as an icon that makes it easy for us to navigate around that desktop. Again, he's saying that our experience of reality itself is like that. 
want to give a few quotes from him here. Quote, This critique also misreads the Copernican Revolution. Yes, our perceptions mislead us about our place in the universe, but its deeper message is this. Our perceptions can mislead us about the very nature of the universe itself. We are prone to falsely believe that certain limitations and idiosyncrasies of our perceptions are genuine insights into objective reality. Unquote. That's such a key quote in my mind, because again, when we assume reality only works certain ways and therefore this phenomenon cannot be real, these suggested encounters that people describe cannot be real, cannot be part of consensus reality. This quote I just read points to the fact that we falsely believe that limitations of our perceptions are genuine insights into objective reality. And his point is that that is false. Another quote from Hoffman, quote, to construct is the essence of vision. Dispense with construction and you dispense with vision. Everything you experience by sight is your construction, unquote. Again, this is the key here. There's a constructive aspect to what we experience, and it has something to do with our evolutionary history and our point along the timeline. What we see, what we experience, what we determine is real is only really what is conducive to us surviving, for us propagating the species. It again doesn't speak to the underlying reality itself. And that is really summed up well in this final quote I want to read here. Quote, Steven Pinker sums up the argument well. We are organisms, not angels, and our minds are organs, not pipelines to the truth. Our minds evolved by natural selection to solve problems that were life and death matters to our ancestors, not to commune with correctness, unquote. So this is key. The point here is, again, the name of the game is survival, playing a game like a video game. When a five-year-old plays a video game and gets really good at it and go through all the levels, we don't assume that kid has some fundamental understanding of reality or that that video game indicates underlying reality. And he's saying that basically what we experience, what we see of reality, quote unquote, is actually like that. It's a virtual landscape that has been constructed to allow us to interact with a reality that we never usually see directly or experience directly or interact with directly. And furthermore, and this is really key, that again, it's not just that we only see a slice of a much larger reality, but we only see that translation into icons and a desktop. In other words, the actual mapping to actual reality is precisely zero. This is key. And this is very interesting when you think about the fact that so many people that have non-conventional experiences, whether they be near-death experiences of out of, or out-of-body experiences or psychedelic journeys or parapsychological experiences or encounters with apparently alien beings, all of these kinds of experiences also involve people often saying afterwards that there was an element of that being more real than real, that somehow when we come back to this waking reality, this somehow seems less real. And if you think about that, impairing that with what Hoffman's saying, this makes some sense. Because again, if this is more like an interface with a set of icons to help us navigate the actual reality, then in these non-conventional states and these non-conventional experiences, we may be getting closer to the actual reality in its more broadly expressed scope. And that may be what explains this sense of it being more real than real to various kinds of experiencers of non-conventional states. Now, as we draw this episode to a close, I would like to touch on this element that has been so common 
in these kinds of encounters with these non-conventional beings across time. This notion of a coming cataclysm, even perhaps a full-on apocalypse. Now, again, we think back to religious history and how there's this discussion about these kinds of things in various religious traditions, about the end of time coming eventually. Again, was that a prophecy? Or was that actually beings providing messages because they can move through time and they know what's coming? We also think about more recent times and how people who've experienced the UFO phenomenon, the modern UFO phenomenon, and encountered the beings themselves, so often are given messages about this coming apocalypse. And furthermore, that the apocalypse is of our own doing, that we are on a crash course in terms of history, and that unless we change our ways, bad things will be the result. These particular messages do not seem to be about some object from space colliding with the earth and causing the next global flood. They seem to be pointing specifically to how our actions are creating this scenario that will eventually prove to be our own demise. To that point, I recently came across an interesting tweet from a climate scientist. He said, quote, OISST provides a real-time daily index of ocean surface temperature. For the last month, it has been continuously reading higher than in any previous year and still shows no sign of settling, unquote. Now, of course, we know that ocean temperatures determine currents and have a huge impact on climate all around the world. And it's an interactive process where actions by one nation state can completely determine the climate future of other nation states. We are a global civilization, even though we do not act like it yet. And this quote led me to say the following on social media, quote, there are cataclysms and then there is the proverbial slow boiling of frogs who remain oblivious, unquote. Again, this speaks to the fact that not only may a cataclysm be brewing in our midst, but we are fundamentally doing it. We are the catalyst for it, and yet seem to be remaining oblivious, almost willfully choosing to pull the wool over our own eyes. In fact, when you think about what's happening recently, again, speaking to this notion that there seems to be an uptick in how much they're interacting with us, some of these beings, even sometimes brazenly displaying themselves in front of our military, it seems like the ante is being upped. The question is why? I would suggest perhaps that a perfect storm is brewing. We see this apparent increased activity by these others while we are also facing numerous major challenges. Climate change, as I just mentioned, social tension, bioweapons, and a new posturing of nations along what seems to be a new kind of cold war developing that might even be a hot war this time in terms of nuclear weapons. We seem to be, again, seeing this happen all at the same time. At the same time that people are experiencing these beings more than ever before, or even there seems to be this open, brazen activity that is even causing our governments to have to face up to this, and against their preference, actually having to talk about it and address it and study it at a public level. So what I'm getting at here in conclusion is while we do see interaction with non-conventional beings throughout our history and perhaps even the shaping of our very civilization over history, while that's been the case on the long scope of history, we should not therefore assume that what we're seeing now is just business as usual. There does seem to be an uptick of activity at the very same time that we are putting ourselves at the precipice of self-destruction through numerous means, not just one. And again, I would point out to you here that 
consciousness is really the ultimate issue here. If we had a high level of consciousness on this planet, then we could solve these problems. But because we are still so divisive, we are still so focused on ourselves as small selves, separate selves, not connected to each other and to this larger whole, this is what's causing these problems. This is what they say to us, not just that you are on a collision course if you don't change course, but that actually the fundamental problem is this issue of consciousness, is this illusion we have of being separate, and that that action, like any action that is based on illusion, is ultimately not going to end well because it doesn't play with the reality as it actually is. And as the saying goes, reality is regardless of how you feel about it. And now I'd like to leave you with this one concluding point. Regardless of what may or may not be happening now at this apparent culmination point in human history, what's clear to me is what is clear to so many of us, experiencers and non-experiencers alike. The status quo for our human civilization on planet Earth is simply not sustainable. In other words, when we deeply reflect on these matters, ultimately what these various others are telling us, warning us about, are truths that in our deepest intuitions we already know. The question we're left with, therefore, is this. What are we going to do about it? And that is a question that is more important than any of the fascinating topics we've discussed today, I would suggest to you. And on that note, we've come to the close of another edition of the Point of Convergence podcast. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash exoacadamian. But until next time, friends, from deep within the Blue Ridge Mountains of North Carolina, this is Exoacadamian, signing out.